You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nefa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. I've been very big on mentor conversations, or I will not call them mentor conversations, but people who have gone ahead of you. I was always curious to have conversations with them about, you know, what was your decision? Are you really where you want to be? Mm-hmm. Things like that. So I realized that most of the people who sang the song I was singing at the time, which was, let's go to school in America, let's work for some years, let's make some money, then we'll move to Ghana and then come and make a difference. Welcome to today's episode of Africa's Business Rockstars. Now, our guest today studied information systems in the university and then landed himself a magnificent job at Wall Street. Then he decided to return home to his country, Ghana, to join his father in the real estate industry. Now, imagine this. Despite all of these, he decided to pursue an interest he's always had, agriculture. And today, he's a successful entrepreneur is the founder of AgroKins, which is a Ghana-based company that produces the brand Nanez Rice. His name is Nana Uwusu Echao, and he's our guest today on Africa's Business Rockstars. Hello, Nana. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Africa's Business Rockstars. Thank you. How have you been? Great. Yes. Excited to be here. Excited and to have you here. I'm excited to see how today goes. Oh, awesome. You love it. I hear so. Yes. Okay, so let's just get straight into this. Um, Just tell us about, you know, the early life of Nana. What was it like as a child growing up in Ghana? Life in Ghana has been exciting. I had a a quintessential parent. She's, you know, a pretty strict mom, Mm -hmm. a very quiet dad. My dad was more into the business side. My mom was just running business, um, a different business. My mom was quite strict growing up. I I, I do attribute a lot of what I do well today Mm -hmm. um, in terms of discipline to Mm -hmm. my mom. Um, you know, she was very big on things like, hey, you know, you need to lay your bed in the morning to sweep. There was a part of the house that I had to sweep every morning. We had to wash a car and wash the terrazzo on which the cars drive on, which was pointless <laughs> because um, once you washed it, um, whenever they drove out and came back in, it got, <laughs> it dirty, got dirty again. again. <laughs> but my mom was trying to instill in us, I think, a discipline that um, continues to stay with me today. Yeah. And yes, I had a dad who, you know, typical dad ran his ran his own business um he runs a business that was called top kings at the time in fact it's still called top kings it's an enterprise so he mm. started out in tailoring mm. and then started building out some office buildings and then he's eventually gone into real estate um, doing residential homes okay so yes you saw him quite a bit not too much i typically played soccer with him on weekends okay so my dad would play soccer on saturday and sunday and i would join him on saturday because mm-hmm. on sunday my mom would dress us up in our suits and then take us to church right to listen to cheese sermons i didn't understand <laughs> um so my sunday school experience isn't necessarily the best but yes that was us growing up um we went to a school that was close by okay uh, my mom again in instilling discipline they didn't want to drop us at school every day so there were moments when we had to walk to school okay and, but yeah that was that was us growing up and yes we had curfews like we're not allowed to be out at six mm. and after six 
We had to sleep every night by 8.30. Mm. So there are different things that I had these kinds of experiences growing up. Yes. You mentioned school. Um, where, where is school? Alsid Academy. Alsid. Okay. All right. Yep. And so that was for your primary that education, primary. right? Yep. After Alsid, where did you go for So after Alsid Academy, I went to Prempe College. Okay. Um, surprisingly. Um, most people who hear I went to Prempe do not believe it. Because Why is I that? speak English. <laughs> most amount for speak Chi. Um, I remember that we had an English teacher um, who hardly came to class, but when he did, he, he taught us English in Chi. <laughs> so uh, that just tells you the extent of Chi that was ingrained to us uh, students at, at, at Prempe College. So, yes, if you do meet a Prempe student, do know that the possibility that you speak Chi is uh, probably 98%. Yes. So, yes, I'm part of the 2% who speak English uh, on a regular. Well, it sounds like you've had a pretty interesting um, childhood, you know, a, a balance of both worlds, listening to how you speak about your mom and then your dad. What's, what's the one thing you remember, like one of the childhood memories you can never forget? Wow, that's a good one. Um, so, my dad even at 64, still played soccer. As at last year, um, when COVID came around, um, he, that, was the first, that was when he stopped playing soccer once a week. Wow. Growing up, I think, as, as far back as I can remember, I think at, at about five years old, my dad was still teaching me like stepovers on soccer balls and things like that. Mm. So yes, I always grew up a sportsy person. I had an opportunity to choose the path of going professional soccer right. or just taking the business side. And it was a conscious decision to, to go the business route. That is to say, though, I think the soccer thing runs through our family. So my little brother picked up the soccer. So he's currently a soccer player okay. um, out in Portugal. Okay. Oh, nice. No so. regrets from you, though. No regrets from me. Okay. I'm very happy that um, at least a member of our family continues to play <laughs> soccer uh, because I'm sure that uh, my dad is a disappointed black star player. It's, like, it's what I like to call him. So, yes, I'm happy that at least my little brother gets to live that out. Sure. All right. So let's get into education from Alsit to Prempe College mm -hmm. and then from Prempe to university, right? Yes. There was an in-between phase, which I think um, was quite formative. Okay, sure. And when I got down with Prempe, I met with a lady called Nancy Ketiku, who okay. was um, an Africa, an advisor, educational advisor at the American Embassy. Right. So I just met with her, you know, casually. One of the meetings my mom forces me to go to. So I went for that meeting and she said, hey, you know what? For one of the first questions she asked me was, what book are you reading? And I said, well, I'm not a reading person. <laughs> that was probably one of the phrases I regret ever saying. Ever saying. <laughs> <laughs> because she said, look, this will be the last time you're ever making a statement like that. You should never live life without reading a book, things like that. And then she decided to take me under her wing. Okay. Um, she took me straight to the American Embassy to work at the educational section. Okay. So I worked there for about a year, and that was quite formative. Mm. It was it was formative in, in, in my decision even to what college to go to. I think my life would have taken a completely different path. Um, while I worked there, my job was basically to help people do research about schools in the U.S., opportunities okay. in the U.S., scholarships in the U.S., um, and then help them chart the path to being able to do that. Now, right. of course, that was a decision that I was also going to take. So I was studying for SATs and things like that. Okay. After you are done with SS, you had about a year before you went to university. Uh, yeah, right. So in that period, I worked at the American Embassy. Okay. So I learned things like community service where you have to do things that are not particularly in your course of study mm -hmm. or you know just volunteer at different mm -hmm. places. So I volunteered at a place called New Horizon. It's in Cantonment. Right, yes. Um, they so have different yep. kids with uh, special, special needs. needs yep. So I worked there and I mobilized about 50 people to be able to work there with me. Um, and we took turns just helping the people in the school um, so that we could get some credit with um, volunteer work. But I think that that was also quite helpful just to to be more grateful for the kind of life that we have um, and, and to be given an opportunity to serve um, people that may be considered less um, privileged right. or, or handicapped in one way or the other. 
And so that was also a, quite a formative time. It was in doing that that I found or discovered the university I went to eventually, which is Calvin College. At the time, I did get admission into some Ivy League school, mm. but I couldn't actually go. Why is that? I felt more drawn to Calvin College. Mm. Now, of course, you don't tell your parents that I have an opportunity to go to an Ivy League because they gave me a better scholarship. Mm-hmm. And then tell them I want to go to this non-Ivy League. Yeah. Um, it was a liberal arts college. I had to pay way more in school fees than I would have had to pay in, in the Ivy League school. But I felt, I felt quite drawn to the school for two reasons. Um, first off, they had smaller class sizes. So on average, one professor to about 20 students mm. was what they said on their brochure. And mm. another thing was... I had worked at the embassy for a while mm-hmm. and I had not at any point in time seen any school put out their faith right on the, on the brochure of the, of the, of the college. Because okay. it didn't say Calvin Christian School, it just said Calvin College. But at the back of their brochure, they had like a bunch of students that were just worshipping. It was a picture. It may have not been real worship, <laughs> but um, I felt like that was, that was unique and that was different. Right. And so it, it kind of drew me more to that school. So I just told my parents, I didn't get admission to any other school. I only got admission to Calvin College. In fact, I said Calvin, there was another school called Worcester, which was in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. So I told them, hey, these are the two schools I got admission to. Of course, Worcester's school fees was more than Calvin, so, <laughs> so I knew would have settled for Calvin. And so then, yes, I eventually ended up at Calvin um, in 2008. Yeah. Okay. Did you eventually tell them that you actually had admission mm, to the Ivy League? Well, League? I, I think that my mom my mom eventually found out. I left the Ivy League admission in, in the wardrobe um, that, uh, you know, of course, moms always go to our wardrobes to go clear them out. <laughs> so, yeah, she did see um, that eventually. We didn't really talk about it. The, the financial aid package was not attached to that. Right, so right. I don't think they understood the full effect of that. Well, I hope she doesn't get to hear this. Well, Mama, if you hear it, doesn't matter. <laughs> Time has passed. Here sure. I am. Sure. So we'll get into um, university in, in the U.S., but what I want to find out from you is why did you want to go to school outside of Ghana? There was no particular reason. Um, it, was, it, it seemed to be a natural progression amongst most of my friends, I guess. You know, we go to school. Uh, during that gap year, most people write SATs. Mm-hmm. And then you, if you get a good scholarship, then you get to go to school mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Most people who don't then get a good scholarship then end up going to a local university. And so I, I, I would say that it, it seemed to be a natural progression amongst maybe some of my friends. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you've gotten admission into Calvary. Was this your first time going to the States? No. Okay. I had, I had been to the States a couple of times. My grandma was a citizen. Okay. Um, my mom didn't make us go there that often. <laughs> I, I keep talking about my mom. It looks <laughs> like uh, today's mommy's day. Yeah, she didn't make us go there that often. Yeah. I spent a couple of months there before school started, though. My mom is number five of six, and she has two of her sisters that live there. Okay. Um, so I, I went to stay with them for, for a bit. Okay. So fast forward, you've gained admission into Calvin. What was the experience like? Calvin was good. <laughs> Just good? Calvin was, it was great for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. It, it was a bit of what I expected it to be um, in terms of small class sizes, terms of a liberal arts education. I didn't know too much about what a liberal arts education meant. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'd, I'd, I'd heard the concept. I didn't know what it would mean in, in practice. But I'm more than glad that I, I did. Mm. Um, I think the lectures were great. Um, I got different perspective on different things. I don't think I'd have done much in terms of studying. For, so first, I went, I went to school with, with the intention of studying engineering. Mm-hmm. The goal was to be an aeronautical engineer. Okay. And... If you ask why, I was good at math and was good at science. And you know what Ghanaians say, if you're good at math and good at science, you're either going to be an engineer or, or be a doctor. doctor. Yes. Clearly, I'm one of those who don't. I'm not particularly a fan of pain or blood. Oh, yeah. 
And so definitely doctor was out of the way. And so then I, I settled for engineering. And of course, engineering is like, okay, which is exciting. I didn't like biology as much because I felt it was a lot of memorization. Mm. So I preferred more of the, you know, chemistry, physics. And so, yes, I was, I tend to do mechanical engineering with the focus in aeronautical engineering. Okay. I started that out. Um, now, being an engineering student, I was still having to take classes like philosophy, mm. um, 153, which was fundamentals of philosophy. And I was learning all about these very interesting Socrates and all these interesting people um, <laughs> and their arguments about life and the earth and how it was formed and things like that. Mm-hmm. I had to do things like psychology. I had to do things like music. These were all things that I, I never would have thought to do, but they were all very great experiences for me. I think that they, they all happened to form a part of the holistic view I have about life or about the world okay. um, today. And so, yes, I started out engineering. Definitely, I did not end up, I didn't go too far um, with engineering, uh, mainly because I felt like I was living other people's expectation of me. Well, who are those uh, other people, though? Just everybody. Because okay. everybody felt like, look, you were, you were, you were smart. In, at Premier College, I was part of the National Science and Math Quiz um, okay. team. And so people just think, if you are like this, then this is where, where we go. all go. Yeah. So... I think that someone having to leave Ghana and then spend time in the U.S., the idea is, okay, let's go and study how to make a car and come back and try to make one. Now, for someone who was now studying aeronautical engineering, I realized quite quickly that Ghana Airways was not working. It wasn't rocket science. And so if I was studying aeronautical engineering, what was my plan after? Because I think one thing you would come to realize is I'm very big on coming back right, home. Right. That's been very big for me right. um, consistently. So I was always having that in mind yeah. as I was going through school. So then, but I had another challenge. Now, I like math. Well, I'm good at math and science and I'm engineering. Now, when I entered my first engineering class, it was Engineering 101. The lecturer at the time was a woman. She was actually the head of the department. Mm. Made a very interesting statement. She said, hey, look to your left um, look to your right. Mm-hmm. One of the people you just looked at will not be with you in the next year. Mm-hmm. Now, she said that to say engineering is difficult. Right. And so some of you will not be able to make it. Yeah. Now, of course, you don't throw an African man this challenge. <laughs> it just will not help me or my mind. So even though I discovered I didn't want to continue pursuing engineering, I did not want to be a statistic. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not going to quit engineering for that um, reason. So um, I went through that year, and then I went through the first semester successfully. Second semester, so like, oh, you know what, guys? The people that were not weaved out in the first semester, there are some courses you take this year which will, which will save those who are not able to withstand the engineering pressures. And that class was, was actually a pretty difficult class. Yeah. Um, it's Engineering 106. I remember that so well. And when we finished taking that course, in fact, we took our first exam, I came out on top of that with an, a Nigerian friend of mine. Second exam, came out on top of it. Um, and then the professor made a mistake because in front of the class, he said to everybody, hey guys, you know, this, this exam may have been a little tough, but you know, be like Namdi and Nana, you know, they, they, they managed to sail through. Yeah. I was like, oh good. Now he's made a public announcement that I'm actually a pretty good engineering student. So, so at the end of that, <laughs> I went to him and said, hey, you know what? I think I want to move on from here. And that was the point at which I switched from engineering and then I decided to pursue technology. So yes, that's a bit about my, my journey at Calvin. But now, why the switch though? Because I realized Africa needed a lot of tech. Okay. At the time, um, things like a website was strange here. Things like e-commerce was not, was not very big. And mm. so I figured if Ghana Airways is not working, mm. technology would give me a, fair, a broad enough 
scope to be able to make a difference in whatever area once I moved back to Ghana. So mm. that was where that was my understanding around technology. So I chose to do information systems and computer science okay. as a double major. Now, also how I managed to do that was because I was in a liberal arts school. So I'm taking some courses already in information systems. And I thought that was really exciting. Okay. So that was kind of how I decided to switch that. Hey, you know, this would be a very good um, skill to have if I decide to move back to Ghana. Okay. And what about the, the Christian aspect? That was also big. So in fact, my, my experience at Calvin is, is, is quite... Every single year I was doing something different. Mm. In my first year, I, I happened to serve. So I didn't, I didn't only do academic stuff. I was very big on what we call it. At Calvin, they don't call it extracurricular activity. They call it co-curricular activity because we felt like the two went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And so for those co-curricular activities, I was, I was quite heavily involved. And there was this, there's this role called a resident assistant, which meant you were like the head prefect of a, of a hall. So okay. I did that at the end of my first year. Um, I don't like to say this too much, but... There were these moments at Calvin that I did a lot of things that were considered the first to do this or the first to mm. do that. So, for mm. instance, most resident assistants did that in their third year. Mm. I happened to do that in my second year. Mm. In my third year, though, I was, I, I was giving a pilot role where anybody who had done something bad had to have a meeting with me for eight weeks or had to have eight sessions of meetings with me. So I was hired by the judicial committee of the school just to have these sessions with students who did anything malicious. So if they went to smoke weed or if they were reported from drunk driving or whatever. So if the school was going to punish anybody, they had to kind of go through this rehab session mm. with me. Um, and so I was called a judicial committee, like student rep, mm. and who had to talk to these um, students. Then in my final year, no, in that same year, over the summer, I was also um, made the orientation leader for all the incoming students. Mm. So that is not a role that has been he- held by an African. Typically, you have, because the school was predominantly white. Okay. The black population was less than 10%. Okay. So it was very strange or interesting. It was a trial by the school to give that role to a black person to lead a, over a thousand students that were coming in for orientation. Mm. And then in my final year, I happened to serve as the student body president again, being the first black president of a predominantly white um, school. So my experience at Calvin was not just academic. I was very heavily involved in all these co-curricular activities. Now, yeah. as a student body president, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed or permitted to run a campaign. You know, in Ghana, we have these things like hashtag fix the country. Um, every president for the year had to choose a course that they wanted to support. For me, I chose a course that was titled Reignite, which was basically for, for most of the students who may have been to a Christian school, but there was no, there was no clear definition that, mm. hey, you have to read your Bible in the morning or you have to do mm. this or that um, as a student. So we just run this program called Reignite, which was just basically supposed to just tell students that, hey, there's a part of you that um, yearns for, for God or yearns for more. Yeah. Um, let's try to reconnect with that. So I had that through worship sessions that we had every month throughout my period of being a student body president. But with the positions that you held, did they identify you or did you opt for them and say, I would like to take these on? For every single one of them, it was people who thought, hey, you need to serve in this role. Mm, and sometimes I was, I was honestly pushing back on, on, on that. I'm not a very uh, public person, right. um, surprisingly, to most people's astonishment for how much out there I am. But yes, <laughs> I'm quite a shy person. Okay. And so oftentimes I had to, you know, Look, look at that role twice. But yes, I, I, I said, and none of these things actually affected my academics, I would say. Because mm. at the end of the year, um, thankfully also, I did happen to emerge as the best student in computer science and information systems as well. Okay. And so it wasn't like, hey, all these, all these co-curricular activities I was doing was affecting my academics. I think, and I think that these things have groomed me to be who I am today and, you know, 
the role or capacity I serve in today. Yeah. In terms, so you're saying you're being the best student and all, and I'm trying to just compare the educational systems here, right? <laughs> you're <just> laughing. Because <laughs> so, ah, I mean, this table you are shaking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like you said, you know, young guy taken out of Ghana, taken into the United States, and over there. It's tough, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to ensure that you're on top of your you're on top of your game. We've spoken to guests who literally would have to probably do extra, you yeah. know, ex- study extra hard, mm-hmm. take extra classes, that kind of stuff. Is that something you had to do, or it just came to you naturally? No, it's not something I had to do. I will say though, I I do think that I I work quite quite hard. Okay. Um, I think that when we set ourselves to do something, I've always been about, and maybe this is one of the things I say for my mom. If you do something, you have to do it well. Um, you have to commit to it. And so I, w- I was always committed to that level of, let's do this well. Let's showcase that we can do it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that African print is a testament to how rich the African culture is. And I feel like if you look across board, whenever an African has an opportunity, and you know, no offense to my white friends, but when an African has an opportunity and a white person has an opportunity, they're giving the same platform. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you realize that the Africans or the black people are doing yeah, they excel. a lot better. Yeah. And I think that, that that has always been at the back of my mind. And so when we get into school, when we get into class, it was always about, look, we need to show people that Africa is not just a country full of animals walking on the streets. Mm-hmm. We do have good educational systems. Yeah, there do. are teachers that are committed to grooming students and grooming them well. And I thought that it was an opportunity for me to showcase that and not showcase uh, the Africa that some people perceived that will be. And so, yes, I, I, I would not say I worked extra hard. I did work hard, did my assignments on time. I was not one of those people who would procrastinate and wait to the night before to get my assignments done. Okay. So I guess okay. oftentimes that also kept me ahead of the game. Okay. And it's something I still do even in business today. I'm not the type to, if we need to get something done, why not start now? Because mm. you have no idea what comes up tomorrow. Awesome. You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and our guest today is Nana Owusu Echao. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. If you just joined us, you're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars. And our guest today is entrepreneur Nana Owusu Echao. He's the founder of AgroKings, which is a Ghana-based company that produces the Nana's Rice brand. Before we went on break, he was talking about his experience in Calvin. And now, you know, Nana, this is the point where you finished university. Mm-hmm. I'm sure first thing on your mind is landing a job. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you hesitated a bit. Yes. <laughs> What? But it was it was it was the first thing on my I mean, prior to that, you had done all these internship and things. So yes, you wanted to make sure that you got a call back from any of these companies you had done an internship yeah. from to start making some good dollars. Yes. And so then, you landed your fantastic job on Wall Street, making the dollars. I did. And you loved it. I did. <laughs> good one. <laughs> no. Um, so yes, I did have an opportunity to work on Wall Street. I was there for three days, okay. and uh, I, on the third day, I went back to the office with my luggage on my way back. To, in fact, I went on my way back to Michigan, which is where Calvin College was at the time, just to fly out and, and head back to Ghana. Because what happened to me was I realized with, I've been very big on mentor conversations, or I will not call them mentor conversations, but people who 
have gone ahead of you, I was always curious to have conversations with them about, you know, what was your decision? Are you really where you want to be? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So mm -hmm. I realized that most of the people who sang the song I was singing at the time, which was, let's go to school in America. Let's work for some years. Let's mm -hmm. make some money. Then we'll move to Ghana and mm -hmm. then come and make a difference. They didn't say three days, though. And they didn't say three <laughs> days. Most of them said two years, five years, max. Okay. Now, when I did the math, oftentimes, five years from that date, you are probably either in a serious relationship, looking to find a serious relationship. You may have or not have a kid at the time. And maybe you may have enjoyed a little too much of the goodness of the life in the U.S. Right. And um, Because oftentimes, when you visit Ghana, you're like, how do you guys do it here? Yeah. With traffic, yep. with law enforcement. Yep. It's just a bit crazy. And so I realized that if I got too involved in this lifestyle, mm -hmm. I could easily get very comfortable. Okay. And then it just takes me, you know, um, in fact, I was dating a, I was dating a Nigerian at the time. Okay. And it would just take a decision to get married. And then we were like, oh, well, let's wait till our kids grow up. And then mm -hmm. let's wait till, um, you know, we are more settled. Or let's wait till we've hit our first $100,000. Or let's buy our first house. Mm -hmm. And I realized that very soon I'll keep like, you know, shifting that goalpost. Right. And so right. this one, look, if I know I'm going to go back, I'm sure if I asked most of my friends who have been in the U.S. for more than two to five years and I said, hey, do you have $10,000 in your savings account? Most of them will say no. Mm. And so I realized, look, if that is not the case, I might as well take the step now. Um, now I'm young. Now, you know, there's, there's a lot less at stake now. I haven't gotten that much money into my bank account yet yeah. to compare. Yeah. And so I, I took that decision to, to move back, um, to, move back to, to Ghana. Did your parents think you were crazy? Again, I didn't tell them too much. Uh, <laughs> you just showed up. I, I, yes, I decided to just uh, make the move back. My dad was like, what? I paid all the school fees for you to, to, to get a good job and, you know, make some good money. Yeah. But yes, I think at the time my mind was made up. So I moved back to Ghana actually with the hopes of going to work with like a Pricewaterhouse. In fact, I, I, I did take an interview um, at Pricewaterhouse. And yeah. again, I was there for a few days. And then I left um, to go work with my dad instead. Okay. Why was that though? You're asking a very deep question. So, <laughs> in fact, at Pricewaterhouse, I had three interviews. I think they have the first assessment, and then you go in and have, like, a, a personal interview. Then you have, you, there are these stages of interviews. And I remember the, the, the last interview is one with a partner. Okay. So there's a partner at, at, at PwC you have to have a meeting with. And I remember having a meeting with one of the partners. And, um, in fact, he encouraged me in a unique way. Mm. And I don't know what he saw. He just said, you know what, you sound like somebody who PwC, in fact, I don't know if he had asked me if I had other opportunities or other options. I don't remember what the question was or how the conversation got there. Okay. But I remember him, him saying that you look like somebody who PwC will one day come to as a client or who would seek you okay. as a client. And I think that those were words that have stuck with me and I don't think it's something I've particularly shared. But... That was a wake-up call for me. Mm. I think that sometimes we, we look down on ourselves or, or we think that certain things are not possible. Yeah. And I do think that those words rang in my ear for a couple of years, and, and I think they still do. And PwC has not actually the kind of have. A lot of things have happened since then. <laughs> and, and I'm glad for the path I chose. Okay, so you landed a job with PwC. That's all, definitely one of the high-ranking companies in Ghana. And then you left that. But you had the opportunity to go and work with your dad, mm -hmm. right? So... People will probably say, you know, he was comfortable. He had something to go to. I didn't come back with the decision to work with my dad. Okay. I mean, the question is, if I did have my dad's opportunity, then why did I go apply for a job at PwC? I did go apply for a job at PwC because I was looking for what I thought at the time was 
bigger and better opportunities. PwC okay. was also one of the very good paying companies. Okay. Um, and I think they probably still are amongst that class of a uh, company. Okay. When I, when I decided to work with my dad, I was being paid 700 Ghana CDs mm-hmm. a month. Mm-hmm. And that was comparable to like two hours of work in the US. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't about comfort. If it was about comfort, I would not have decided to work with my dad because mm-hmm. PwC would have paid me more than 700 Ghana CDs a month. And so it was more of a decision. It was a commitment for me to learn because, you know, that engineering thing was still there. Um, I came back. I saw some things my dad was doing and, and maybe other people who move back to, to work with their parents have this issue often. You end up, you, you realize you are butting heads a lot because mm-hmm. now I've come in from the U.S. with all this experience working in different companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, having all this tech background, and then you come to, um, I think my dad at the time was almost 60 at the time, and they don't have a lot of tech going on in the business. They don't have a lot of planning going on in the business. You know, I'm, I'm working with my Excel sheet. I'm taking, checking all my costing before I get started on the project because it was a real estate company. Okay. And so we realized that we were not always doing things the same way. And so that was part of even the reason why we had to leave eventually. So it wasn't, that, it wasn't an issue of comfort for me. It was a I liked real estate. I had done some work in the real estate um, space already. And so I said, look, let me rather pursue that path. And so if there was any other real estate company that was willing to take me, and I would have probably gone, gone there as well. So I took, on, I took that role with my dad's company as a business development um, executive at the time. And my job was mainly to help figure out all their new projects they were going to, how much the houses will cost, what the houses, how they should be designed and things like that. So that was a bit about um, the role I took up with, with him. It was not, I don't think it was a comfortable um, job per se. There were people, there were friends of mine who were making way more money than 700 cities at the time. How long did you work with your dad for? I worked with my dad for, from August till March of 2013. So I moved back to Ghana 1st, August 2012. I started working with my dad um, sometime in August. And then I moved to start my own real estate business in March of 2013. How did that go? That went pretty well. And I think I've been very big on service. Um, and again, this is something I learned during my, my work with uh, New Horizon. So a friend of mine had called um, and said, hey, and I'm looking to buy a house with my husband. And I can see you're already in the real estate space. Um, so come help me figure out this particular um, house that we're hoping to buy. So I took a trip with them. It was all the way in Tema community 25 and i got there and then they were looking at these houses and then i was looking at the price i was like wait this is way too much money so i think at the time it was about one hundred and fifty-four thousand dollars. Mm. they were going to buy a three-bedroom house i mean i felt like that was too much money at that location i saw the house and i didn't think it was worth that much and now again at this point i've had some experience in the space mm-hmm. and so i then told her without a lot of background having done this myself but I'd done some costing. I had some numbers in my mind. I said, look, give me the same amount of money. I'll give you a better property in a better location. Now, of course, because I'd, I'd been doing this for a couple months, I did have some experience about location. Because my job had to do with going to different project sites, knowing what they were doing, how they were doing it, how they were costing their project. So I had a fair sense for okay. cost of land and things like that. And so I gave them this challenge that, hey, you know, if you're willing to give me $154,000, I will be able to give you a house at a better location, and I'll give you a better looking house than what you are currently looking at. And funny enough, she went over and told her dad, I've met this guy who says you give me a house for that same price point. In fact, mine was $155,000. At that same price point, they'll give me a three-bedroom house at a better location than um, in Community 25. Mm -hmm. I don't know what touched the father to decide to give me a chance at the time. 
And so the father decided to call me to his house. It was one night. It was around 10 p.m. Because, you know, busy rich men like him only have time at night for people like me. So he called me into his house and then he counted his first $49,800 for me. Cash. Uh, cash. Um, in fact, we counted it uh, in person. And that was his deposit for the house. And so he made that deposit to me. And I remember driving home at 11 p.m. at night, looking all around. I was looking to my left, my right, behind. I was making sure nobody was following me because I had that much money in my, my account. And I remember getting home that day. I was still living with my parents. And I took the money and uh, I, I laid to my bed. <laughs> and I remember kneeling down and going like, wow, is this me? And I think I, I said a prayer at the time that um, I hope I'm able to do what, what I'm planning to do. Yeah, our real estate business is still growing and it's still doing really well. And so I do think that, thankfully, since that particular contract, since right. that particular house, let's give some perspective. The man who paid the money lives in Trasaco. He came to my house, uh, our property, and said, hey, you know what? I think that he told his wife, who was with us, in the room when we came when they came to do their final inspection for for her for his daughter to move in with her husband that wow he said to his wife and said hey we should move here for like two weeks before our daughter moves in <laughs> and for me that was that was a very big compliment i remember yeah. my my engineer who was working with me at the time ran outside and was like jumping and jubilating because for us we're, you know you can imagine nerve-wracking yeah. um delivering your first house to such a a client who believed a lot in excellence and for them to be able to say they want to move out of their house in Trasaco to come stay in this house that we had built was a very big compliment for us. But since then, we consistently got different jobs. So I got an opportunity to build a school. After that, I got an opportunity to build other people's homes and, right. you know, we've continued to have contracts ever since. But that deposit that you got from um, the lady's dad, was that your initial working capital? That was my initial working capital. So you had look, nothing? Look, I said, <laughs> I was being paid 700 Ghana CDs. And it's not even like my father paid me every month. There were some months he didn't wow. even pay my salary because, you know, the business had, um, you know, challenges like most Ghanaian businesses do. Yeah. And so it was not like I was even being paid every month. Wow. So yes, I, that was literally my, my, my startup capital. Let me say that was my startup capital in physical cash. Okay. Because in reality, one other thing I did was I worked with a lot of young, so I, I had a young architect friend of mine who was a good student at tech at the time. Okay. He also was like, you know, trying to do his own small business. Okay. Um, so I told him to give me some design. So that's the design I actually showed to this, my friends and parents that, hey, you know, this is a house I want us to build. Now, at the time, I had not paid that architect yet. The okay. idea was that, give me this plan. When we get our first breakthrough, I'll come pay you. Okay. So there was like an IOU yeah. that was in there. Yeah. And, you know, I had an engineer who I had hired just to help me to costing, with costing the project to make sure that, hey, I said I'm going to deliver this house. Will we actually be able to do it? Okay. So all these people were working for me at the time believing in the vision I was trying to sell to them yeah. that one day we'll be able to build out a real estate company. So when she, when I received that first deposit, where like things were already in place for us to actually get started. What about but the yes. land? Acquiring the land? Where yeah, so in fact, uh, interesting story. So I did acquire the land from my dad. Okay. Trust me, he did not give it to me for free. <laughs> um, in fact, when I told my dad, oh, you know, I'm hoping to build a house, he said, please, please, get to work. Like, at the time, I was still working with him. The land is really expensive, and so I was not going to be able to pay for that. So yeah. I eventually had to go through my mom, and then my mom had to go tell my dad that a friend of hers was trying to buy a piece of property. So we went through all the processes. Like, my dad created an offer letter for us, sales and purchase agreement. He just didn't know it wasn't 
his own son who was mm-hmm. downstairs of the house. And so I gave her my initial deposit as out of the, the initial 49000 I think at the time it was about $25,000. So I paid the initial deposit and then she went and delivered that money to my dad. They gave a receipt to my mom thinking I was an external person. But then all that um, came back to me. So yes, I did apportion the deposit in a way that I was able to put some down for the land and then put some into the construction work as well. Okay. So yes, yeah, it was a whole financial engineering. It was fun. <laughs> so why then did you venture into a different industry? It's all connected. It's all connected. <laughs> it's liberal arts. So it was not a conscious decision to enter into a different industry. Now, when I started our real estate um, business, I did also did do a bit of technology because, again, that was my background. I had a group of, um, there was a team that I worked with um, in the tech space. And so I was working with them on building some, you know, some software on the side, you know, to help with. I had some interesting ideas in tech I wanted us to explore. Mm-hmm. So they were not working for me full time per se, but I had some idea of technology I wanted us to try to build some tech. And so I would not say that while I was doing my real estate stuff, I was not thinking about other things. Again, Africa or Ghana is is a land full of opportunities. Mm. And for someone like me who had come in from the U.S., I could see a lot of those opportunities very quickly and easily. Mm. And so sometimes I tried to pursue some of them. One of it, um, I remember reading in, I think it was a Forbes article. He had written that Africa was utilizing about 8% of our arable land. Mm. And I remember circling that um, particular phrase with a pen. And I sent it to a few other African friends I had that, guys, we need to get a piece of this action. Like, it doesn't make sense that Africa is only utilizing 8%. What ha- what's happening to all the, the remaining 92? Yeah. And so I always had this idea at the back of my mind. So even though I was pursuing this real estate thing, that particular highlight and stuff was, because I think I saw that on some flights back to Ghana or, or something like that. And so I was actually pursuing a real estate project um, in the Akuse area. Okay. I went out there trying to look for... There was, there, was a, there was a minister at the time who wanted us to build. He had gone to Dubai and had seen these um, chalets that were built out on, on islands. Mm. So people would have to take speedboats and stuff to go to that island and then live there for a couple of days. So in Ghana, they were similar to Dodi, Dodi mm. Island mm. And with mm. the Dodi Princess. The only thing is, Dodi Island, you don't stay there. Yeah. You just go there and you yeah. return. Yeah. So his idea was, how about we build some chalets on this island and then people could come and then spend a couple of days. People could have conferences out there. So that was the idea. So we went out to this area trying to look at this um, project. And in doing that is when I eventually stumbled on, on this rice project. But prior to that, I tried this uh, cattle rearing business. A friend of mine who was in Accra with me had said, hey, he has some cattle. Because I saw him buy like a Kia truck. I was like, hey, Charlie, we are all working. How do you have money to buy this Kia truck? Because I checked the price. It was about 125,000 CDs or so. He said, oh, you know, he has a cattle business. Oh, tell me more about it. So he had about 60 or 70 cattle and he was making quite a bit of money from there. So I said, you know, I want to start small. Um, So I committed about 10,000, no, 16,000 cities at the time to a cattle rearing business. We went to the north and went to buy some cows. And then we brought them to Akuse area to start rearing. Yeah, my my, my story goes way back. That was, was, I think, in 2015. Okay. Yeah. So I tried that out and um, it didn't work out too well. So, but while I was doing this agri-business, I was still doing my real estate business. So, I'll take out some of my profit yep, and yep. I was using it like... So, to you were funding this. the other projects through yes, that? Yes, yes. Okay. So, I did that um, um, cattle-rearing business. It didn't work out too well. I went, I went to the Fulani um, place one day, one, one Saturday. I was like, oh, you know, can you separate my cows for me to see? Because I had about uh, 16 of them. And then, when I counted, there were 13. I said, hey, where's the other three? He's like, oh, uh, oh, I forgot to tell you. In fact, that day I was calling you, but you didn't pick. When they went out to graze, three died. 
I was like, so what did you? Why did you? Say, oh, you know. So I sold them. That was why I stopped eating kebab, <laughs> because he basically told me that he sold the sick cows um, or the dead cows to some uh, guy in the area. So I was like, oh, is that is that normal? So oh, yes, we didn't expect him to burn it. So at that point, I was like, wait, does that mean I like kebab? So let's buy dead cows. Look, to anybody who eats kebab, please uh, do continue to consume it to your satisfaction. But yes, that that for me was a difference uh, maker. And so I moved from cattle rearing. In fact, that day he told me that I stopped my cattle business. I said, look, I'm not going to pursue this business anymore. Pay me my money back for all the cows. Sell all the cows and give me my money back. And so that was it um, for us on, on that side. And I came back to do my real estate business until this particular opportunity when I went out on this um, trip with the minister. Yeah. And then the chief in the town gave us some rice to try. He said, hey, this is rice grown by the people in my town. Mm. And so he gave us that and I came to Accra and I tried it. Prior to this, I was like a very big... I loved rice. In fact, it's probably what I consume the most. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, this is comparable to what we've already been buying. Yeah, so this chief gives me this rice. Um, I, I tried it at home and it, it tasted really good. So while we're following up on this, because of course, you know, building out this island took, took a bit of time. We had to spend some time with the chiefs in that community, trying to finalize on how much we're going to, you know, take the land from them for, what other things we're going to bring to them as well as we built out this project. And so in one of our follow-up meetings, my rice had gotten finished. So I, I went to the chief. I was like, hey, you know, I want more of the rice that your people grow. Now, the second batch he gave me didn't taste like the first. Okay. So then I went back and I was like, no, this is not similar to the first one you gave me. And then he said, no, the type I gave you is a little bit more expensive to grow. Mm. And so it's not the regular. And mm. I was like, oh, what's the difference in price? And I realized the difference actually between growing the new type I was consuming and the first one I had, which tasted really good, was about 600 CDs. Mm. So I said, hey, you know what? Give me about two or three people. Let me sponsor that difference so that they don't, they were already producing their normal one. Let me give them that 600 CDs and then let them produce the better quality mm. just so that I, I will continue to eat this rice and I will feel better because I'm eating, you know, mm. rice made locally. Made and so that was, that was the beginning. Now, that chief that day went ahead and got me like some experts who grew rice in that community. Oh, when I stepped in and I said I wanted to finance the difference, all the three guys they brought to me said, oh, no, they don't have any money at all. Like, they don't have any. So I have to sponsor the whole thing. It's not like I can sponsor the 600 difference. So then I started out at the time with about 12 or 14, 12, about 12,000 CDs. Okay. So I used that to be able to sponsor that entire um, farming cycle. And then they said, hey, look, now once you invest this in the period, we will be able to sell all your product for you and then you get your money back. So okay. that was my consolation that, okay, you know what? This is just a short-term investment. I'll do it once and I'll get my rice and I'll be gone. And when I did it, it actually went out. It turned out really, really well. Um, the rice came out really good. In fact, before we harvested, we had about three people who were on standby who were waiting for the rice because they said they had seen the way the rice grew and mm. they knew it would be different. Mm. So before we even harvested it from the field, we already had a market for it. Okay. So I was like, oh, this is a pretty good business. Now, then there was a catch to it though, which I didn't know at the time. So when the person comes to take the product, they take the product from you, but then they take it to the market and sell. Okay. And then they bring you the money back after they've sold. So I was like, ah, wait, what is special about the market she's taking to that I can't take it to? He's like, oh, Nana, we know you're a busy guy. You don't have time to be able to sell <laughs> this in the market. I was like, oh, who told you? <laughs> Today, this modern day market, there's something called online um, sales. And so I actually just took, the, took a few bags. So they had already done the deal with a woman. So she had taken a lot of the bags. And I said, she should just give me three of the bags back, which gave me about 35 bags of our five kilo packs. Mm-hmm. So she gave me those 35 packs. And then I put that online just to share with my friends that, hey, you know, there's rice available for sale. Prior to that, I'd put online that, hey, 
if we're going to brand rice and then sell it packaged, people should give me name suggestions of what we should call that rice. And I got all kinds of suggestions because at the time, well, still, our, our, our company is actually called Agro Kings um, on the agro side. Our real estate business was called Kings Realty. Um, the holding company is called Kings Innovation. So people realized the, the trend yeah, the with the linkage, Kings. Yeah. So people were like, oh, we call it Kings Rice. People go, I was like, no, I want a name that is local. Because again, for us, I was like, this rice that tasted this good should be on the shelves in Holland. I said that from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Without, mm-hmm. I just knew that, look, if that Arabo land thing, the fact that Ghana could, could do something, came to me again. So I was like, look, this, this rice should be good enough to sell it in Holland. And I don't know why I chose Holland. And so people came up with suggestions. I wanted a name that was authentic, a name that when you saw it on the shelves in Holland, you'd be able to tell that this product had come from Ghana. Mm. Then, of course, I had two people who suggested Nanesh. I had different kind of um, alternatives. But two people suggested Nanesh Rice. The challenge I had with Nanesh Rice because my name was Nana. Mm. And I didn't want to sell a product that looked like it was a product with my name on it. Okay. And so I was struggling with it. But honestly, it's the name that fit in the best. Because the most common Ghanaian name in Ghana is... Exactly. <laughs> you meet three people. If, if they're not even calling, they say, oh, no, me too. They call me Nana at home. And so I realized that, look, that, that Nana name was, you know, synonymous to yeah. Ghanaians. And so we stuck with the name um, Nana's Rice and branded it. I sold all those 35 bags in less than two hours online. And then I knew that, look, there's something here. Yeah. So the following year, we worked. So first time we worked about two, three farmers. The following season, we, did, we worked about 25 farmers, and then we did 100 farmers, and then we did 300 farmers. And then. But how did you get the farmers to start growing in numbers? Did they hear about you and come to you and say, we'd like to work with you? Is that how it happened? Yeah, so what happened is when, so when we take a farmer, we train them to grow the rice the way we wanted it, with, that better, with those better methods and yeah. those improved methods. Yeah. So whenever a farmer was going to work for us, they had to be... So for how we got our farmers... Um, we, after the first session, what we took them through, we took them to a training to be able to farm the way we hoped or expected them to farm. And so, yes, of course, word got around because what also happened from our training is the farmer, the average f- rice farmer has mm. probably been able to produce about three, 3.5 tons per hectare. Mm. Our farmers are able to do five, 4.5 to 5 tons per hectare. So, of course, they make more money when mm. they work with us and yeah. go through our procedure and process. So after that three, we, we then work with about 25 of them and then they all have to be subjected to that training program. Okay. And so yes, that's how. So word keeps getting around with how we do it, how we work. And then also for most of these smallholder farmers, when people take, when people have gone through this process of helping them to farm, they don't give them the money immediately. They say, hey, I'm going to sell, to sell the product and yeah. then I'll come back. But yeah. for us, once you produce for us, we pay you everything within okay. two weeks. Okay. Just so that you can have that money to go do whatever you need to, to do. Because yeah. most of these smallholder farmers still have school fees to pay. They have kids to take care of. And so giving them money only based off of their farm doesn't actually help them yeah. as much. So, And I'm very happy to say, look, some of our farmers are like grown leaps and bounds. There's a, there's a lady... Um, like we call her Madame Regina. She's actually on most of our, our social media. She's on our delivery van. And I like to talk about Madame Regina because she's a good testament of what, what is possible. She, we started work with her on about one hectare. Today, she probably owns herself over 13. Okay. And, you know, she buys a lot of her stuff. She doesn't even come to us for all the money anymore. She's like, look, I, look I've been able to go buy my own net. I've been able to go buy my own net. And I think she's a good testament for what is possible when people actually stick to the program and people actually take, uh, take what we are doing within those communities very seriously. So you referenced your program and how 
what you do is different. I'm hammering on your background information systems, you know. So yep. do you have to go research into this rice venture that you wanted to get into? Yeah, so so and and I think that's what I was saying that all the different things that have happened for us have culminated in what or who we are today. Okay. Like right from the get-go, our farmers have this thing we, we're working on, we're still working on improving it, called the farmer app, which allows every single smallholder farmer to update us on their to-do list every day. Mm. So <laughs> if it's day number 22 and you need to do something, we are sending you a notification that shows that, listen, this day number 22, you actually need to do roguing, or is day number 55, you should be preparing to harvest around this time. Okay. So the technology has been taking to that side of the farm as well. We are, we are always, you know, using the newest technology. So like mobile money comes in, we are mm-hmm. like, look, we don't need to come and we don't have mm-hmm. to give you fiscal mm-hmm. cash. Mm-hmm. We enrolled all these people in, in a, a mobile bank, which was also helping them with financial inclusion because mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. banks had these unbanked people now banked. Yeah. And then we kind of made disbursements through there. We track all their work through Excel. So in part of our training program is teaching them about technology. So you see us in our training program showing them like these smartphones, some of them who don't have smartphones, we could ask. get them some of those smartphones to be able to do that kind of work. Okay. okay. We didn't give it to them for free though. We made sure that they paid for it because yeah. I realized that when you do yes. hand, hand me downs, they don't take very good um, care, care of those. Of it. Yeah. So right. we build them for it. And you know, <laughs> when you decide to build them for it, you realize that most of them actually have smartphones. <laughs> and so, and so yes, that's been our experience in those communities. Okay, let's let's stay a little bit on the on the training program. How did you figure out what needs to be in this training program? So again, we were working with the ex- experts in that community. So okay. the, the expert for irrigation farming. So rice for us, we don't just farm during the rainy season. We don't mm. just do major major season farming. Okay, we farm all year round. So we okay. use irrigation systems. So Interesting. There's one expert who's responsible for over 3,000 farmers in that area. Mm. Then there's an agronomist who's also responsible for all the 3,000 farmers in that area. We work with these two individuals to ensure they actually help us to select the good farmers because we don't want farmers who will be defaulting. Because when the farmers default, then it means we are not able to help more and more farmers. Mm. So these two guys have helped us to be able to know how to grow the rice the right way, how to get the good yield that we're looking for. And then we employ the farm manager who then lived within the community. We rented a house there. Uh, it's not a house. We rented a room. Mm-hmm. And then this farm manager, she lives in that community. And then she has to visit all these farmers to ensure that they are doing what, they are, what is expected of them. And then she updates our technology. And then we receive that update here in Accra. Okay. So then we're able to keep track of every single farmer, where they are at, with pictures and you know, knowing how much every farmer has spent up until that time. So these agronomists and irrigation um, engineers are the ones who help us design the program that the farmers go through. And then they also ensure that all the farmers are following those protocols. It doesn't sound like you've had any challenges getting this done. It's been like, it sounds really smooth sailing. <laughs> I'm sure uh, it has been. <laughs> even, if it, even if it was smooth sailing, just the fact that I am in Ghana is enough to tell you that it was not smooth sailing. <laughs> so, of course, we have had um, um, very levels of, ch- of, of, of challenges. On the production side, on the, on the storage side, on the distribution side, we've had challenges every single step of the way. For instance, um, some of the farmers um, would take the money, um, and we didn't give them physical cash. Most of them, we didn't give them physical t- cash. Mm. We went and we acquire what you need, and then we put them in a, in a warehouse mm. or, or, or with the person, the seller. Mm. So when the farmer goes there, they know that, oh, I'm a farmer with AgroKings. Then the, you're able to sign off mm. the product and mm. just take the product. Some of the farmers still, funny enough, when it's time for harvesting, can try to circumvent the process. Mm. So what we did was 
we went to see all the, in fact, there are, there are two people who are able to harvest rice. So we've seen both of them and said, hey, the following farms are ours. Don't go there if we have not sent you there. Because if mm. you go there, that means it's a farmer trying to harvest before we get there. Because the farmer's goal was, let me go there, let me harvest the rice. And then I'll just bring the people back their money. But we're not looking for the money. We're yeah. looking for the product. Yeah. So it was, not, it was not in our interest for the farmers to take the product and just, you know, because we we're also paying the farmers market value. We didn't reduce the price for the farmers to work with. Whatever the price is in the market is what we give you. Okay. So there was no real incentive. There was no real motivation yeah. for any farmer to not sell the product to us. Yeah. And so these are some of the challenges that you have because people will just try to be smart. Yeah. Um, sometimes <laughs> people will try to harvest manually instead of using the combined harvester, even though that would give them a much less yield. So if you harvested manually, you could probably get about three tons as mm. opposed to the five tons you would have gotten if you waited for the combine to get there. Mm. But for some of these farmers, they thought, hey, let's be smart. Let's try to, let's not give them our rice. And, mm. and sometimes you don't even know, like I, you can't even understand in your mind what exactly. Because you're paying them, right? Yes, I, I pay them exactly the, the value that they need. But yes, people sometimes just try to be, um, because I guess what, what will happen is they could take that product and not pay me the money back. And try to turn the money around before bringing me my money back. Mm. And oftentimes that doesn't go very well with them. Out of about 25 farmers that we work with, I think there was a time where about four of them defaulted, which is very good comparative to what other people have experienced in the area. Okay. But for us, it was still not um, good enough. And we, we continue to strive to make sure that, look, we want zero yeah. defaulting. Because for us, it's about being able to grow. Like I said, we started with three, went to 25, went to 100, went to 300. Our goal is to be able to get to as far as 2,000. So we are also putting in systems and, and stuff in place to ensure that as we scale, we don't get more and more defaulters or we're able to mitigate the potential um, theft that could happen. Um, some of them you can't control. For instance, um, there was a time when, when it's time to harvest, you don't expect rain. But there have been times when there's been consistent rainfall. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the harvesting gets really difficult. And because mm -hmm. of that, some of the farmers had to default. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's kind of a rare um, situation or, or happenstance. So, yeah, these are some of the challenges we've had. Again, transporting rice from Akuse to Accra was so expensive. It made more sense for us to buy a van after distributing for one year. Mm. Just from two farming cycles, the amount of money we spent in transporting products from Akuse to Accra could have bought us our own um, Kia truck. Okay. And so eventually, of course, as we continue to scale, we managed to be able to do that. Because our goal eventually is to also make the price a lot cheaper for the end user. Right. So they're able to compete with some of the imported rice pricing. So is the business paying for itself? Currently, it is. Okay. The only part is we are expanding quite a bit. We are currently working with about 300 smallholder farmers. But last year, we just acquired our own land, 2020, during COVID time. Because COVID allowed the real estate business, because real estate is not considered essential business. <laughs> and so food and agriculture was considered essential business. Definitely. So that was a good time for us to be able to spend more time on the farm. So some of our, our ideas or visions we had as a business, more long-term, we had to, we were able to expedite because, of course, it was locked down and we're allowed to move around during that period. So we managed to finalize um, an acquisition with our landowners. So um, we have been able to lease quite a bit of land. And so we are investing a lot in developing that land to make sure that it is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. So we don't depend on anything. The irrigation system we used to use in the community with those 3,000 farmers, with the ones we're working with, was a government-funded one. Mm -hmm. Government has 
the World Bank has funded a, an irrigation scheme, the Kpon irrigation scheme. So that serves about 3,000 farmers in the Akusei Suchari area. Okay. So those are the people we're working with. But what happened in 2019 is they were going to renovate a section of it. So a lot of our farmers could not farm during that year because they were going through the rehabilitation okay. process. Okay. So we realized, hey, we cannot be dependent on this irrigation system because sometimes government can decide, hey, we want to rehabilitate or they could have one issue or the other. And so we decided to go and acquire this land that we currently are acquiring or we have acquired. And then we have put in our own irrigation system to ensure that um, we are able to farm all year all round. round. Yep. In percentage terms, <laughs> mm-hmm. how would you say your business has grown from when you first started to now? Three, we started with three farmers. We yeah. started with two <laughs> hectares. That was in 2018. 2018. Yeah. So three years later. Three years later, we are currently farming on about 300 acres so i've gone from like two to about 300 now let me give that in terms of revenue so in 2018 our total revenue was about 14 14 or 18,000 cities i I can't remember right now it was about two thousand five hundred dollars as at last year we had done revenues of about a million dollars so cities okay so i have gone from yeah. 14 14 000 <laughs> cities in revenue to about a million cities in revenues over over wow. the three-year period wow and i think that as of 2021 we have currently exceeded our, our 2020 um, revenue now again let me give a bit of correction so we went from 14,000. the following year 2019 we did about 88,000. then we did from 88,000 to a million cities wow so that just gives you some some perspective, perspective. Wow. yes and, and where's the major source of this? Is it local or from your exports? Mainly local. Nice. Mainly local. So even for our export market, a lot of the export guys, we didn't go seeking them. Again, people have just seen, this is a good product, this is a good quality, this yeah. is good packaging. Yeah. And so they come and they're like, listen, this needs to be wherever they are going. Nice. And so then they handle all the shipment and then we just take their information and then we just tell all our customers within that area that, hey, you know, there are people in this area who you could also serve with your product. Are you able to meet the demand? No. So in fact, what has allowed... a problem to have though. Yes, it is a good problem. In fact, what has allowed our revenue to grow that much is if I, if I had 20 million in product, I will sell 20 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my revenue is actually just a fraction of what I'm able to produce because yeah. whatever we're able to produce, we're able to sell. Yeah. And again, we are very, very big on innovation and very big on tech. So we are very big on value addition. And so this year, before the year ends, um, we have two exciting projects, two exciting products, okay. which put pressure on myself and on <laughs> our own production because we discovered a way to start a breakfast cereal. So we have a cereal that is not only for babies. I've always been big on being able to produce baby food um, because um, when I had my, my kids, I realized they were always drinking Vitamilk. And I said, there must definitely be something <laughs> um, that can replace Vitamilk. And yeah. so I've always been trying to figure out what is something we can do in the baby food space. However, we have been able to stumble on something that is a little bit more exciting than just baby food. So we have produced a cereal, um, which would probably be in stores um, probably, nice. um, by the end of this out month. Out of rice? Out of rice. Nice. So it's called Siri Soya. It's, it's, it's a cereal made out of um, rice and soya bean. Nice. And that has put a lot of pressure on our production because... Look, we've already started selling Siri Soya um, underground. Okay. If we produce 400 bags today, we sell all. Nice. Everything we produce is gone by the end of the day. And so, because we're about to launch this product, yep. and we're about to release it to the masses, yep. 
I'm like, uh, we need to find a way to produce way more rice to, to be able to continue to meet that demand. Yeah. And then on top of that, um, something exciting is happening. We also managed to create a rice juice, which has been very exciting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, stay tuned for our rice <laughs> juice um, as well. So, yes. So, these, these additional products that have, that have been released or that have been tried or piloted already giving us pressure in terms of the demand of our rice because already the rice is already gaining its own ground and by itself to have added value to that and be able to take some of that rice and produce the cereal and take some of that rice to produce the juice is definitely going to even put more pressure on us but our goal at the end of the day is to ensure that anybody because there's some families today thank thankfully who swear by our rice is like listen my house is not eating any other rice apart from nana's rice mm. which we are very grateful for and we are thankful for all our customers who feel that way. But our goal is never to have a product that people would say, hey, I'm looking in the market and I can't find it. So one of the challenges we have now is to ensure that we're able to measure our growth well enough that the families or the customers who decide that, listen, this is the product I want to continue to have in my home, that they continue to have that product whenever they need it. Right, right. So I'm going to have to pace our growth a little bit. And that's a hurdle I'm going to have to fight over the next couple months. So where, where, where can we find, where can we find your produce? I've had, I've had some, by the way. Thank Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So, you so are, where can listeners find your produce? So we are currently in about um, 200 stores in Accra. Um, we are in Takrade and Kumase, though not very actively. So the Takrade, Kumase and Obwase are people who just, again, they just love the product and they are doing their best to promote it. Yeah. We will have to get more active in being able to um, get to those stores. I wanted to get to at least 200 stores um, in Accra before we, we branched out. But again, what has happened is the, the foreign market has come very big. Um, mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. requests in other African countries. So we are already in, in Cote d'Ivoire and Togo. And now a lot of pressure to be in Congo, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, South Africa. So these are countries, but look, unfortunately, it's more difficult for me to ship to Cote d'Ivoire and Togo than it is for me to get a product I'm in sure. Belgium. I'm sure. And so I'm we sure. are already in Belgium <laughs> and the, you are in Belgium, the US, the UK, Germany. And guess what? We are actually shipping to China, which is exciting for us. Yes, there's a company that's in China that loved the product. I guess it was the owners. So the, Somebody took it there for a trade show, and then the guys loved it. And so they said, hey, they want to distribute in about 800 stores in Shanghai alone. And so I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to be able to manage this future growth. But it's, it's exciting stuff that are coming up. Oh, and, and then Ireland, and then we are now in the Caribbean, Caribbean islands. So I think one day I'll decide to travel to all the countries that um, have Nanes rice <laughs> um, as well. But, you know, interesting fact, and maybe this is taking you a little bit into my inner place, and maybe this, this may help or support somebody who may be listening in my office we moved to this office probably about two or three years ago in my office there's actually a picture of the globe it's, it's not a it's not a picture it's a, it's a sticker mm-hmm. of, of the globe and it's on a very big wall right in my office and and underneath that um, globe i have we've written there i believe mm-hmm. and i say that to say that today in 2021 i'm able to talk about you know our product being in belgium and china and all these other countries but Again, the vision that we set for ourselves in the beginning, which was about three, four years ago, um, to be able to produce a product that's good enough, to be able to go that far, is basically what we are living or enjoying today. It's not like you know, once you start a business in three or four years, you should be able to reach this. But for us, it was a conscious thing and at the forefront of our mind. And everything we're doing, as we continue to scale, as we continue to help more and more farmers, it was very conscious and very active in our minds that, look, we need to produce products that are that are locally produced but have global standards. Right. And I think for us, that's, um, 
that's something that I'm very thankful for, that we've been able to set out a vision that today we continue to see unfold as the days go by. What do your parents think? They don't say too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not much, actually. I, my mom gives me pressure about people who are requesting for their product and we're not delivering it to them fast <laughs> enough and things like that. So my dad, my dad, again, for his passion for soccer, um, has a soccer team. And so we also sponsor his, his soccer team. So we produce... We, we serve the, his soccer team with some of our rice product as well. So, yes, I guess we sponsor his soccer team. And then my mom has her friends who she calls me, Nana, this friend needs the product. Send it to the office. In fact, send it yourself. It will be important for her to meet you and to know. I'm like, Mama, if I went to every customer, I would not have any time to do my own work. So, yes, I have moments like that with my mom where I have to um, serve. But I think, I do think she's fine. I don't think that they tell me that um, as much. Yeah. But, um, yes, I, I, I guess as I reflect on this right now, they are probably um, proud to see their son have a product that their friends get to tell them about. I'm sure they are. I'm yeah. sure they are. All right, we're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and our guest is Anna Owusu-Echa. We'll be right back after this break. You're welcome back from the break. We are talking to Nana Usuechao, who's our guest today on Africa's Business Rockstars. His name is synonymous with Nana's Rice, locally produced um, rice right here in Ghana. Nana, so we've had a very interesting conversation. We've talked about your growth, you know, um, the profits you've made as a company. Key question, where did you get those initial funds to begin this rice company? I was waiting for that uh, <laughs> million-dollar question. So... First, the first twelve thousand um, um, that was invested yeah. again, it wasn't done at a go. Um, it was done over a period of about four or five months. So you know, I had to pay two thousand and then pay three thousand, and that was internally generated. So I had again, I had a going real estate business. Um, I was being paid a salary for my business. Um, I had some investment, and so I was like, you know, let's put our money where 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 our mouth is. Mm -hmm. And so that was what happened in the first in the first instance. From that initial three to the second one, which was the 25. Now, what had happened for me was the 12 was like a test. It was a pilot for me. Okay. So looking at the numbers, how much we invested, how much we made, I had a fair sense for the returns, the potential returns on the business. And so for us to be able to support the 25 farmers, I remember doing the math. It was approximately 120000 or hundred and Yeah, it was about 120, It was about $30,000 at the time. I don't remember what the, what the exchange rate was. Um, and what I did with that is I've done a lot of family and friends rounds. It's what I did even in my real estate business. Mm. So how that family and friends round worked is similar to my first real estate project. Like I said, I was given $50,000, dollars I remember because he thought it was 50000 When he counted, it was $200 short. So I was very thankful for counting the money there. Yeah. So when he made that initial deposit... Some of the, the subsequent payments had to come based on specific deliverables. So it's like when you reach this stage of the project, then yep. I'll pay you this much. When you yep. reach this stage, then I'll pay you that much. And so with that same understanding, what I did was there were a few friends of mine, like my friends who are in the diaspora, who tell me they are living the better life or who seem to be living the better life because they're making dollars and I'm making simple CDs. So sometimes I go to them for opportunities because I know that in the U.S., there are not that many good investment opportunities most of the time, the return on your investment is about 2%, 3% for the year. Mm -hmm. And so what I was doing was I was sharing my profits with some of these friends of mine. Okay. So I'll go to a friend and say, hey, you know what? I'm trying to raise about $20,000. Are you able to give me two? I'm willing to give you 2% every month 
for the next one year. And so I, I have a lot of promissory notes on my, on my laptop <laughs> at the time because I was always like having these kinds of conversations with my friends. And again, for me, I had built a lot of good social capital. Because again, while I was in school, I was... Yep. People, yep. yeah. So, yep. <laughs> so people, knew, people knew me to some extent. People knew what I had done in Ghana before we left for the number of people I'd even helped to find schools in the U.S. So being able to... And people were seeing some of the progress we were making in Ghana. They saw my move to Ghana. They saw, hey, you know, why did I decide to move back to Ghana when I had all these opportunities in the U.S.? And so for some people, they were willing to take a chance on me. And they did. So some people gave me $5,000, $10,000. I don't think anybody gave me more. I think the highest I received was about $25,000. And I got even some of that money for my mother-in-law. Mm. My now mother-in-law. Then she wasn't, maybe, yes, my now mother-in-law. She was making some investments um, around. And so I went to see her um, about giving us some money. Um, and then I gave her a promissory note. So we had about, on average, I was giving people about 3% every month. It was quite expensive. But then at the time, I couldn't raise money from the bank. No mm -hmm. bank was willing to give us any money. Mm -hmm. They would typically ask you for three-year finance. I'm like, who should have supported me for the next three years for you to come and give me money after three years? So, of course, I didn't have any three-year financial to back any loan application. And so I had to resort to this family and friends. And that's really what I've done to be able to build out the business to where it is today. Okay. And you've been able to pay everybody back? I've been able to. I continue to pay some back. But, yes, thankfully, I don't have any... Um, bad blood with anybody who we took money from and um, sometimes there were delays here and there and sometimes when there were delays i compensated for that delay so if let's say for one reason or the other for instance and um, what happened a lot on the real estate project was you know a client tells you i'll pay you in a month or i'll pay you when you reach the lentil stage and then i get there and they, they don't actually pay the money mm -hmm. so this was some of the challenges i had um, but then whenever they paid, sometimes I will, instead of me to pay just the arrears, I'll pay the arrears and probably pay about a month or two ahead as well, mm -hmm. just so that I was able to build confidence with some of these friends. Because again, for me, we were going somewhere. Yeah. And I knew that I had the same way I had started. If I got, Ghana is too small. If I have a good name, it would help me as I continue to scale. If I don't build out a good name and a good reputation, yep. it just, it's just a matter of one person saying, hey, I have a very bad experience yep. with Nana and that'll be it for yep. you. And so for me, I was very big on being, make, making sure that I was building very good relationships, not burning bridges, and being called a fool oftentimes, even among some family members. So, I, I mean, there were some family members I took money from, like my cousins and stuff, um, who I took money from. And I think that another thing I did was I made it known to them that was mutually beneficial. Because that money you had sitting in the bank, you have an opportunity to give it to me, to employ some people to make a difference in a community, mm -hmm. and then also make you a return. Like... Mm -hmm. What more do you want as an individual? <laughs> so making money while, while, while changing or affecting people's lives. So that was really the pitch I made to most people. And then eventually, you know, it, it is not, it's not been as simple as I'm saying it. I mean, there were times when even for us scaling our rice business, there were times when we needed some of the money and some of the people who had promised, oh, no, no, I think I'll get you some of the money by the end of the month. They are not able to actually come through um, with that. And then you have to go borrow from a friend for two weeks and then wait for the guy to pay you back in two weeks. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's magicnomics, but, uh, it has, it has, which is magic and economics put together. It's been magicnomics for us, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm very grateful for, for where we are today. In fact, just to add, um, we are currently as a business in the process of raising funds because, yes, now we have the three-year financial. We have proven some track record. We have proven some growth or traction. And so we are now in the point where we are going to some financiers for either equity funding or debt funding or grant funding. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're talking about your finances, you mentioned how primarily, right, it's, it was based on your network. Mm -hmm. So for someone who's listening, who doesn't mm -hmm. have this, you know, network of, I'll call them affluent 
um, people to a large extent. How do they go about financing ventures like this? In fact, I, I've heard that I've heard that before. Mm. I, I don't think that it's it's I had a network of affluent people. Okay. I went to simple ordinary people um, for money. Okay. Um, if anybody who's listening, you probably that means you probably have a smartphone, you probably have a laptop. I keep saying this: if in your contact list mm-hmm. you can't have five, two people you could call, that would give you at least three times your current salary, or an amount of money you need to start a business. You need to change your network. Like you need to find yourself in some different places, or you need to serve somewhere. Mm. Because look, there's one perspective I've come to learn is there's a lot of money around that is seated in people's bank accounts mm. and is looking for good people for that money to go to. And so I felt like one of my jobs or one of my roles was to be one of those good people that money flows to. Okay. Because there are a lot of affluent people, and, and, and I'm sure everybody can think of a friend or somebody you know who's affluent, whose kids are probably not doing very well, or whose family members, or who the, the people who he should be bequeathing his wealth to Absolutely. are not doing a good job at managing it. Now, what, what more... Could it be than be the one who served in that household or served in that office place where when that affluent person is thinking of someone who can manage his money or manage or give money to, your name will come up. So there's there's no excuse for anyone who says, I don't have a network of affluent people. Then you haven't served enough or you need to change your network. Um, And not change your network in terms of go find yourself at Cafe Kwai or spend a lot of time at Airport City. I just think, look, you could go to a place like New Horizon and just go serve there and meet one of their special needs kids' parents who has an opportunity. I mean, they are, even, even in, my, in my daughter's school, like her teacher did such a good job. If today I wanted to start a school, if I wanted to give money to any teacher, she's the person who will come to mind. Yeah. So once people do good quality work, there are some good people who have some resources who will be willing to commit those resources to you. So that would be that would be my my response to anybody who says, hey, I may not have a network. In fact, some people who have networks of affluent friends don't are even, pro- don't even yeah. they are not even able to get that kind of money or they're not able to use that kind of money properly. Nicely said. Nicely said. What are the future plans for Nana's Rice, for Agro Kings? <laughs> future plans. The future plans make me laugh sometimes, but they are very real to me. Um, first off, like I said, um, similar to the globe that's in our office, I hope is that we continue to produce products that are grown from the center of the world. It's something that we are very big about. Um, and we, we want to make that our new marketing thing where we want to say, hey, this is food grown from the center of the world or these are products produced from the center of the world. Trust me, if the center of the world is in Dubai, I'm sure by now mm-hmm. they'll be making a ton of money from that. Now, it being in Ghana, clearly, uh, nobody cares. <laughs> now, our hope is to try to make that count a bit. So first off, it's going to be able to promote more of that um, goods and products made from the center of the world. On our farming side, with, with regards to our work with smallholder farmers, our goal is to continue to expand that work. In the next two or three years, our hope is to be able to serve at least 2,000 of those farmers. Actually, not, yes, within the next 24 months, our hope is to be able to support at least 2,000 farmers um, and, and also go, go and grow beyond the Akusia Sutuari area. Um, as well. On our own farm, which is, um, our hope is to build a community out okay. there. Um, a community where our farm managers, our, our agronomists, our, our tractor operators and stuff are able to live 
out in that community. Our, our goal is not to have this um, rural urban migration yeah, continue yeah. to be a thing. So we're hoping to build out a school out there, you know, build out good water systems and things like that um, so that we're able to live in a community out there. Um, and so do well to, to visit our community soon. Um, it will be a whole town. So we're excited about that. Besides that, on the product side, we are just going to continue to innovate around our products. Um, like I said, we have a cereal a rice drink coming out. Um, we are currently in conversation with some Japanese guys about producing wine. We are in conversations about producing instant cereals. So, you know, something similar to Rice Krispies and things like that. We want, like, good products made from the from the center of the world to get to the end of the world. So those are, those are like, some of our, our plans coming up. Big plans. Stay tuned. Yeah, well, we, we are here for it. We're here for it. All right, so Mela, on Africa's Business Rockstars, we have what we like to call our Rockstars quote. And it's basically, you know... <laughs> That mantra that spurs you on, that keeps you going, you know, you sound like someone who has quite a ton. So what's, what's that one thing that, that keeps you going every single day? Okay, I, I mean, as much as a quote, for me, I, I, I don't have a quote, and maybe I, I'm not able to think of one on my feet now. Mm-hmm. But I'll say for me, it's an ideology. Yeah. Um, and that ideology stems from the idea that Africans have a very rich culture, and we have been very blessed as a, as a country and as a continent that... I think it's, it lies on us as Africans to showcase that to the rest of the world. Um, and for me, I think that's a big driver. And that's why for us, anything that we're doing, our goal is let's make it excellent enough. Let's make it good enough. Um, so that the end of the world will see that there's something good right here in Africa, right here in Ghana. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nana, for being our guest on Africa's Business Rockstars. We've been having a very educative, insightful, and very entertaining conversation with Nana Ousu Achao. Uh, he's the producer of locally grown rice, Nana's Rice. Uh, be sure to follow us on all our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook at Africa's Business Rockstars. My name is Neva, and I've been your host, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Goodbye.